just to give you a feel for the neighborhood, uh, they, there was, there's been like four or five homicides in Grand Rapids in, 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 this, in this little uh, stretch of the last, the last few months, I think. Um, and two, of, two or three of them have happened on the west side. And, uh, and on Wednesday, I think it was Wednesday, Patrick was volunteering at the Bridge Street House of Prayer where we're gonna meet for church. And all of a sudden, the, the police swarmed the neighborhood and, and he you know, locked down the building and the, the house immediately behind, 10 feet behind the back door of the Bridge Street House of Prayer, uh, they, they, uh, they, they did a raid at the house. Person went out the back door, ran across the lawn, jumped across the fence of the person in the house two doors down from the Bridge Street where one of the staff is who has a three month or two month old baby. Uh, she saw the police all over the neighborhood. She hid in a room with her baby, covering her baby. The person was apprehended in the front yard of her house as they ran through the backyard of their house. This is the person who committed two of those, those homicides. And, uh, um, and well, that, that's our neighborhood. Uh, just, uh, boy, we need Jesus. A lot of Jesus in this neighborhood, in our city. Um, because, uh, like we're going to study today, the world is a difficult place in a lot of places. And, and sometimes even in our lives, we face personal challenges that, that really, uh, really make us pause and lean on the grace of God. So that's what we're going to talk about today, Exodus chapter 2. Let's read it. Now a man from the family of Levi married a Levite woman. The woman became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw he was beautiful, she hid him for three months. But when she could no longer hide him, she got a papyrus basket for him, coated it with asphalt and pitch. She placed the child in it and set it among the reeds by the bank of the Nile. When his sister stood at a distance in order to see what would happen to him. Pharaoh's daughter went down to bathe in the Nile where her servant girls walked along the riverbank. She saw the basket among the reeds, sent her slave girl, took it, opened it, and saw him, the child, saw, and saw him, the child. And there he was, a little boy crying. She felt sorry for him and said, this is one of the Hebrew boys. And then the sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, should I go and call the Hebrew woman who is nursing to nurse the boy for you? Go, Pharaoh's daughter told her. So the girl went and called the boy's mother, and then Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child and nurse him for me, and I will pay your wages. So the woman took the boy and nursed him, and when the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter. He became her son. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. Eleven years, years later, after Moses had grown up, he went out to his own people and observed their forced labor. He saw an Egyptian striking a Hebrew, one of his people. Looking all around and seeing no one, he struck the Egyptian dead and hit him in the sand. The next day he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting, and he asked the one in the wrong, why are you attacking your neighbor? Who made you commander and judge over us, the man replied. Are you planning to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? And then Moses became afraid and thought, what I did is certainly known. When Pharaoh heard about this, he tried to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in the land of Midian and sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters. They came to draw water and filled the troughs with water and their father's flock. And then some shepherds arrived and drove them away. But Moses came to their 
Moses came to their rescue and watered their flock. And when they returned to their father, Ruel, he asked, why have you come back so quickly today? And they answered, an Egyptian rescued us from the shepherds. He even drew water for us and watered the flock. So where is he? He asked the daughters. And why did you leave the man behind? Invite him to eat dinner. So Moses agreed to stay with the man, and he gave one of his daughters, Zipporah, to Moses in marriage. She gave birth to a son whom he named Gershom, for he said, I have been a resident alien in the foreign land. After a long time, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned because of their difficult labor. They cried out, and their cry for help because of their difficult labor ascended to God. And God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God saw the Israelites, and God knew. So to set the context to remember what happened in chapter 1, the descendants of Abraham went down to Egypt with Joseph as their leader because there was a great famine in the land, and so they lived there for generations. As their, uh, their community grew, the Egyptians became threatened and started to suppress them, Uh, in fact, made them slaves. And then because they were so fearful of this other culture living and rising up among them, uh, they were so fearful that they they started oppressing them even more. And then they wanted to suppress the growth of this population. So they told the midwives, uh, you can let the the baby girls live, but the baby boys must die and and they must be killed. And it says the midwives didn't, didn't follow their instructions, but uh, and so God prospered, uh, God's people prospered, and, uh, but nonetheless, there was a lot of oppression going on, and uh, I'm sure there were probably some baby children, baby boys that were found and killed. And so that's why they go to this desperate uh, action uh, you see in the very first part where Moses' mother floats him down the stream in this little basket. This whole thing starts, the story of Exodus is really about, and you think of the word Exodus, the word, the word has to do with the, the, the exiting, so you can link it with this, Exodus, exit. It's the exiting of God's people out of slavery, out of Egypt, out of a really difficult situation. And this is one of the defining stories of, of God's people and particularly even remains today a defining story of the Jewish people. How many of you heard of Passover? The story of Passover is this story. And the story of this exit, deliverance, this, this uh, deliverance out of a really difficult situation, slavery, oppression, grinding oppression, and slavery, and, and then the, even the killing, the murdering of their own people, their babies, um, God delivers them out of that, allows them to exit out of that. And this, this is really a defining story of the people of God. And in this deliverance story, there are some key themes that, that are repeated over and over that you see God's people relearn over and over. And I think it's really good as we look at these themes. Uh, they're not new themes, but they're themes that we need to be reminded about every day because life is full of challenges. Now, unless, now if you have had a challenge-free week, you know, then, then you're going to have to reach for this uh, to, to make this work for you. But if you have had some challenges this week, then this is probably going to work for you. 
And I think that even as we study God's word every day, we got a Bible reading program in the back, a great thing to do, as we remind it, reminded every day of the, the, the challenges that we have as we walk as a people of God, as people who seek to follow God in a, in a fallen, messed up world. We, we experience challenges every day, and these themes that we see we're going to be talking about today, we're reminded of week to week. These aren't new themes, uh, especially at Crosswinds, but we're reminded of them every, we're reminded of them every week because... I think we need to be, because these are lessons that we have to learn over and over, and we lead, need to learn them over and over because they're difficult lessons. So let's dig into one of the first ones here, which is uh, letting go and trusting God. So these people, the Israelites in this, in this situation, uh, would, you, would you define them as people in power of out of, out, out of power? It, it's pretty obvious here. There, there are people who don't have control over the basic aspects of their life. So it says in chapter one, the Egyptians made the Israelites their slaves. They appointed brutal slave drivers over them, hoping to wear them down with crushing labor. I don't, I don't think you can just kind of fly over their words. They, they were, they were, the slave drivers over them were brutal. Now, now some of you can relate to working for a difficult boss. Some of you have worked for different, some of you are working maybe under a situation where you have a, a difficult boss now. But, but I don't think brutal is something that, that anything like this is anything that most of us have experienced. And, and then the next word that's used is crushing, crushing labor. So they can't choose their job. They can't choose their financial future. They can't, uh, they don't have very little control over much of their lives. So, so we can tell our kids right now, you can tell your kids, you know what, you can grow up and become what? Anything, right? I mean, if, if, if people have come out of really difficult, dire circumstances and become extremely, in our culture, extremely successful, that, that, that is possible. It doesn't mean there aren't problems or difficulties to, or challenges to overcome, but it's possible. So, but they can't tell their kids that. There, there is no future they have for their kids. They come home every day after a day of crushing labor and probably just collapse uh, asleep. They can't tell their kids they can become anything they want. Every day is daily humiliation. And, and not only is the daily humiliation in terms of what they do, but now these people are seeking to murder their children, their babies. Now, now just, just let this sink in for a minute. This is soul-destroying. Because one of the things that define us when we, when we are newly married, and if you have the privilege of having a child, is just welcoming this child and then taking care of this child and then feeling responsible for this child. And now, becoming pregnant at this time means not joy, but fear. Imagine being, experiencing your 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 your, your self-growing with your child within you and then realizing that you have to hide this because if they observe and see that you are pregnant with child, then they will be watching to see what type of child you have. And every aspect of the whole child uh, being born process, instead of being something of joy and being something of thanksgiving, brings incredible fear because if this child is born a male, they intend to kill this child. 
Now, let's just think how soul-destroying this is, that you can't even control the well-being of your children. And, and this, this goes very, very deep, especially as a guy. As a guy, you want to protect your child. You want to help your child. You want to um, serve your child. You want to help your child, give them every opportunity to prosper. And, uh, and here they are. They find themselves in the opposite thing. And, and one of the things that we see early in this process is that Miriam, she, she is blessed by having, uh, be, being able to conceal this baby this baby for just a, a couple months. But after a little while, imagine how desperate you would be. After, after just, a, just a little while, she realizes she can't hide him anymore. So imagine how difficult, how, how distressed you must be how, in terms of your options, that the best option you have is to put your baby in a basket Cover it with tar, make that thing float as best as possible, put your baby in that basket and push it into the water. Just, just let that sink in for a second. I mean, any one little tip, and what, the, what is the, you could see that thing go 10 feet from you out into the middle, catch the current, and all of a sudden, a little water starts seeping in, and then what And then you could see that thing go under. Imagine this. This is soul-destroying. Imagine your circumstances are so desperate that that is the way that you have to, to, to rescue your child. That that would, and yet what this is is a moment where, where mom and dad realize that to save their child, they must have a letting go, they, they must give him to God and, and pray that God will rescue him and, and give him to, to God. Now, is that a lesson that we have to learn as parents? Is that a lesson that we have to learn in life? Yeah, over and over and over and over. Because one of the things that's hard in life is giving something very, very important to you, surrendering that to God. Now, in our culture, we have this thing that's sort of the opposite extreme. Now, they didn't really have even the basic control over their, the well-being of their child. But now we've kind of gone to the opposite extreme because we want control over our kids. And so we feel like we can control every aspect of, of their lives. And, and, and almost we've deified our, our role as parents to the place where we have this thing called helicopter parenting. You ever heard of this? Helicopter parenting? So helicopter parenting... Is, is this phenomenon where parents hover like a helicopter over their kids in every aspect of their life. And really, now you have to kind of get to the parenting phase of your life to understand what this is about. Now, as kids, it's like my, my mother was like, uh, over. I would say my mother's over, overprotective when I was a kid growing up. Now, my friends, it's like, my, my, my friends would say, we just tied a sleeping bag to the, to the, to the handlebars of our bikes. We're going camping, Bradley, out into the, out into the woods, okay? And it's like, you want to come? And I'm like, I'm going camping with you. I got my, my, you know, my bike, and I got my handlebars. I'm going to strap my sleeping bag. So I go to my mom, and she sees me getting a sleeping bag, tied up the handlebars. She says, what are you doing? You, I'm going camping with my friends. You, you weren't going camping anywhere. 
You're not sleeping somewhere in the woods. I don't know where you are. Do you realize 10 miles from here, this whole thing about Charles Manson happened 10 miles from here? I grew up in Los Angeles, you know, in the area where all that kind of thing happened. 10 miles from here, and that's the thing that, like, you aren't going anywhere, anywhere close to something like this without armed bodyguards. And I was like, oh, Mom, you never let me do anything. You ever say that to your parents? And you're like... How come, I, how come I don't have parents like, and at the same time, all this time, I, I kind of had in the backstory, I, I, like, I, I knew that some of my friends had parents that's like, what are you doing? I was like, I don't care. They do what they want. And they had parents that never really checked or followed up on, you know, they, they kind of had free reign or whatever they did. And, and there were times when I, I resented that, but there were other times when I was very thankful that my mom kind of stepped in and said, she, it's like, I know she cares. Now, she kind of is overprotective. I wish she'd back off a little bit, but, but I know I'm loved. And that's the one thing I appreciate. So this phenomenon of a helicopter parenting is this thing where, where parents, and sometimes it refers to high school or college-age students, who, who, where the, there's tasks that the kid is per- perfectly capable of doing, but the parents do the tasks for them, like check on their grades and arrange their class schedule and manage exercising habits and fix their lunch. And it's almost like they're toddlers, but they do this all the way up through high school. And... Uh, they, they, when they're in, you know, they're in the, we've had a funny experience of, of Pastor Dave Block uh, talking about coaching uh, football and all the things that the parents are going on about, you know, they're, they're, these kids, are, we're trying to teach them how to run that way down the field, okay? Your kid isn't going to be a star quarterback, don't, you know, how come you're not making my kid quarterback? He doesn't even know which way to run on the field. We're just trying to get him go one, this is the way you go, you know, because kids are running everywhere, you know? And... And, and, but these parents are like over, over, overreaching, and, and, and it's like if they're not making their kid the star player or giving their kid all, all the playing time, then they're resentful and angry and, and constantly hovering over and asking Dave uh, to you know, do things to step up the game for the kids. So, so why do parents hover? Well, there's, if, if you're a parent, you'll understand this, and, if there's, and here, here are four reasons why or five reasons why. One is because... There's a fear of dire consequences. If, if you don't protect your children, then there's a fear that something terrible will happen to your child. So they try to protect their child from every circumstance. And, and the problem with that is that life is full of challenges. And one of the ways we learn is through the challenges that we face. How many challenges have you gone through in your life that were great learning moments for you? And you would never have learned it the same way if you didn't have those challenges. So a second reason is feelings of anxiety. We worry about our kids, uh, and worry starts driving our, our, our hovering over our kids, trying to protect them from every hurt, every disappointment, every problem that they could, that they, they, they could experience. Another reason why parents hover is because they're overcompensating for experiences they had. Like you might have grown up in a family where your parents didn't care. They might have been totally absent or checked out or whatever. And so you never had parents that were loving and attentive and all that. And so you're like stepping way overboard to try to flood them and fill them in a way that you didn't. So they're overcompensating. Uh, Peer pressure from other parents sometimes make you feel that way. Or sometimes we're just controlling people. Now, there are some people that on the scale of control, some of you are like, eh, just kind of like, what's going on? You're very easygoing. And some of you want to control every aspect of everything in your life. So, so all those reasons are reasons why parents hover over them. The problem with this is that the opposite 
effect of what they're trying to accomplish often happens. Kids, instead of learning through the struggles, feel that they're, they're, they're children of privilege, that everyone around them has to serve them. Like, and so they show up for college, and it's like, who's arranging my class schedule? And, and so the advisor looks at them and says, I'm sorry, what? You, you're an adult now. You have to arrange your... Well, I never arrange my class schedule. Well, who, who's going to tell me when my homework's due? Well, okay, here, here's the way this works, kid. You know? And so now, now they're shocked as they're starting to do, manage their life in the adult world. And there's a lot of things they can't do because they've never done them for themselves. And so in the, in the act of trying to protect and hover and control your child's prosperity in every aspect of your child's life, you in fact harm them because they, they're not per, per, um, prepared for the challenges of life. They don't have the proper co- uh, coping skills. They have a sense of entitlement. Uh, a lot of the things that they should have done and should have learned, they never learned. And so now they're in the adult role of trying to feel like everything is there and should be taken, everybody is around them, should be taking care of them and life just doesn't work that way, and so they're not prepared to deal with the challenges of life. Some of you grew up in really challenging homes where you didn't have much, and then you had to kind of make your way for whatever you were going to get, and you learned a lot of life lessons in that early, in that early time. We, we got kids, and we don't go to our parent-teacher, not parent-teacher, but parent uh, uh, community school uh, leadership team programs and with our us as, as leaders in the, the West Side community. And so we meet with our social workers and, and so they, they, they constantly bring up challenges and ask us to like weigh in like one, one of the kids wasn't making it to school because he didn't have an alarm clock. And it's like, can, can somebody weigh in and buy this little boy an alarm clock? Because he has to get up at five o'clock, get his brothers and sisters ready, uh, 6.30, get his brothers and sisters ready, his six-year-old and five-year-old brother and sister ready for school. And then he gets them off to school and then he gets himself ready and gets here by, this is a, a third grader. Uh, that person, that little, that little guy learned, is learning a lot of responsibility early on. Now, nobody, maybe that's a real challenge, but, and so, and so sometimes this little guy is so busy getting off his, his siblings to school that, that he, doesn't, he can't get ready till eight o'clock and then he's midi- missing his first hour. He's walking to school and, and so, you know. Um, but but there's the, the upside of some of those challenges is that there's some great experience, life learning skills that if you take them in a, into adulthood can prepare you for, for challenges along the way too. At some point, and here's what you have to realize as parents, you can't control the, every aspect of your child's happiness, life, success, potential, or experience. You, you can't control who they meet, who, who they marry, who they, what job they choose. There's a, if they're healthy or sick. I mean, they're, they're, you can to some degree, but, but you can do everything right, and then all of a sudden something difficult happens that you can't control. And here's, here's one of the things you have to realize, that as much as we try to, as much as out of control as, as, as Moses' mother was, at, some, at this early stage, she had to learn to give him to God and surrender that to God. And the problem with our prosperity is we think we can control everything and ensure 
control someone's happiness, and we can't do that. And so what we have to do is give, do our, do our best, and then give our children to God. Give the things we love most to God. And this is a lesson that was learned over and over. Remember Abraham didn't have a child till he was late, and you know, late in his age, and then and then God says, look, you have to surrender this child to me. It takes him up through this amazing experience. You, you know, you have to think of, of the insane aspect, the insanity of taking your child, putting your child in a basket and pushing him off in the water. And, and that's like insanity. And that's the best option you have. And so in this time, what you're doing is giving your child to God, and that's what we do. So Moses then, in this amazing story, is, is God arranges for the deliverance of Moses out of the water, instead of going downstream and who knows what could have happened, is delivered by actually by, by Pharaoh's daughter. And this brings us to our second point, and that is that after we have done everything we can to do the right thing, there's a lot of things, a good portion of life that we don't control. What we do then is we give control to God. We give it to God, and so that's what, that's what she does. So here's the amazing thing when she gives Moses to God. Pharaoh is seeking to kill and suppress God's people and, and control God's people. He's seeking to avert a catastrophe that he foresees happening in the future, which is this people rising up, becoming so numerous that they will actually overtake the Egyptians that, invite, that, that uh, inhabit the land. So they're, they're being motivated by fear. Pharaoh's motivated by fear. And so he's seeking to suppress God's people. And the very person he's seeking to suppress is the person that will, in, in fact, lead God's people out of out from under Pharaoh's kingdom. So the very person Pharaoh is seeking to kill then is delivered by Pharaoh's own daughter. And then Pharaoh's own daughter is raising the person that will deliver God's people from under Pharaoh and Pharaoh's paying for all this to happen. The, the, Moses is, in fact, then raised by Pharaoh, is housed, clothed, and fed by Pharaoh, and then comes under, think of this, the person that Pharaoh intends to kill comes under the protection of Pharaoh. Do you see how, how God can orchestrate things that you could, in your greatest imagination, never, I mean, imagine Miriam, let's devise a plan. Okay, plan A, push Moses out into the water. Plan B, somebody get Pharaoh's daughter to get her by the river. How are you going to control that? Now, if you're a control person, that's what, in fact, we try to do. We try to get around every aspect of things and then manage or make that happen. And, and, here's the, and, and, and when we, what you realize is when you give stuff to God and you let God uh, be in control of life, and you open yourself up to grace, then what you realize is God can do stuff that, humanly speaking, you could never even devise a plan that, that could make this happen. It's so amazing. So, raised by Pharaoh, housed and clothed by Pharaoh, protected by Pharaoh, and all of this is to fulfill 
God's promises. Because Moses then grows up, instead of as a slave, he grows up as a person of Pharaoh's household. Instead of being the person that's out of power, he is the person in power. He, he grows up um, and, and, and is, a, is a child of privilege. And here's, here's the, the, the other miracle, the next miracle in this story. As a child of privilege, being raised in Pharaoh's house, and knowing at the same time in the background by the way he looks, by the way he is, and because his mother knows and everybody knows that this backstory at some point was probably revealed to him, he knows that he is in fact not Egyptian. He is in fact a Hebrew. And he becomes consciously aware that his people are the people that are slaves while he is in Pharaoh's household. And then that, that, that awareness dawns on him. And then he decides, instead of just saying, Whoo! Dodge that bullet. Let's just enjoy Pharaoh's household, you know, and let's, let, let's just enjoy the party because we are living large. <laughs> instead, instead of just like camping there and saying, you know, sucks to meet you. You know, I mean, uh, uh, really sorry about all those people, all you people, you know, but hey, I, I got delivered, you know, and so here I am. I've, instead, instead of just like living in that, here's the second miracle. He aligns himself and feels a deep purpose to associate himself with not his privileged place as the son of Pharaoh, but align himself with slaves. And then, as he grows in affinity toward them, seeks to actually deliver one of his kinsmen from, from probably some terrible beating by killing an, an Egyptian. And so the next miracle is that Moses is aligning himself with his Hebrew, with his Hebrew brethren and, and in fact, is drifting in, think, thinking and drifting into this role of protector. When this all goes awry, he realizes he has to flee. And, and so he flees. He has to now escape because he realizes, because he killed an Egyptian after doing his best to be a part of the deliverance thing, he, he has to run for his life. And so now, every aspect of privilege that he had enjoyed is now history. And he is running and living as a fugitive and, and, and crosses the desert, walks away, finds the family of Miriam, marries the daughter of Zipporah, and has a child and starts to build a new life as an outcast of Egypt in some backwater place, you know, like, like Howard City, okay? I, I lived in, right around there, right? I lived in, I was a resident of Sand Lake for a little while. I know what I'm talking about, okay? So he is like relegated to some back backwater place, and instead of being the person who can, controls armies, now he's in charge of a flock of sheep, 
and, 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 and after he feels like he, he has maybe tried to be a part of the delivering of his people from some difficult circumstances, now himself is a fugitive and, and then begins his second stage of life. And that seems to be defined even as he tried to do the right thing. It seems to be defined by disappointment. He names his child Gershom and he says, for I have been a resident alien in a foreign land. So he, now he is a person without a home. He was a person without a home to begin with because he was a, in Pharaoh's household, and yet he was a Hebrew, and he tried to be an agent of deliverance for that, but that didn't work out. And so now he's displaced again. And now he's a resident in a foreign land, and he feels like, it seems like he feels like he's a person without a home, and a person without a people, and a person that has been relegated to a backwater, and instead of controlling armies like he could have been and maybe been in charge of so much, he now has so little. And so God is still in the process of fulfilling his promises of bringing his people out of Egypt by an exit. This was a conscious choice on Moses' part. It says in Hebrews chapter 11, it says this, by faith Moses, after he was born, was hidden by his parents for three months because they saw that the child was beautiful and they didn't fear the king's edict. By faith Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter and chose to suffer with the people of God rather than enjoy the fleeting pleasure of sin. For he considered reproach for the sake of Christ to be greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt since he was looking ahead for a reward. So Moses himself surrendered. Moses' mother surrendered when she pushed him out into the water. Moses sought to become a, a, a a part of God's bigger plan, and he sought to follow God, and that for himself at this stage seems to be ending in disappointment. But what we see now in, a, in a, the, the, next act, the next aspect in the story, if you look at it, is that you realize that God's grace is seen through the whole, weaving through the whole story. And here's, here's one of the aspects I think we can de- de- just apply to our lives today. A lot of times you will see the, we will see the grace of God, not, not through the easy stuff, but you will see the grace of God working through some of the real challenges you face. And the grace of God shows himself strong through, through difficulty. And when you look at the story, you see that grace is woven through the whole story. Moses' Moses' parents have seen God's grace. They see grace in Moses' birth, the fact that he's protected from the first time he's born, and the fact that he's allowed to live. They get him to live even though he's a male child born, and others are seeking to kill him. We see grace in his growth, in his early growth, as he's still being hidden. And if he's discovered, he will be killed, but he's not. And then we see grace in him being pushed out into the water. And instead of sinking or floating downstream, he's adopted. And so we see grace in his adoption. We see grace in his mother raising him. We see grace in his returning back to his people and seeking to care and love for his people and actually deliver one of his fellow Hebrews through a difficult circumstance. 
we see grace in his, in his escape. He could have been captured after he killed the Egyptian and executed. We see grace, but he wasn't. He escapes. We see grace in his escape. We see grace in his journey. We see grace in his life in Midian. And then we see grace in anticipation of the next step. Here's the amazing way God works. It seems, it seems at this stage in his life, at the end of this chapter, that he has a child and he says, I'm a person in a, for, I'm a foreigner in a foreign land. It seems that the thing that defines, that he feels in some ways, because the story isn't complete, that at this stage, the thing that defines him is disappointment and sadness and heartbreak. Compared to where he started, think about this. He, he could have controlled armies. He lived in wealth and luxury. He lives probably in a tent. He lived in palaces. They still don't know how they built some of those things, you know, the technology of, of, of ancient Egypt. It's amazing. The, the places he lived, the things he saw, the foods he ate, everything being waited on as the child of privilege in the greatest degree, which is really difficult for us to even imagine, uh, even in the 20th century, he lived and experienced all that, and now it's all gone. What does he have now? Here's here's what we're going to see, and here's what Moses looks forward to, that God is going to use him in ways he never dreamed. Think think of what it would have been to be Pharaoh at that time. If you were Pharaoh, you could ride in a chariot down the center of the street, and, and I mean, you had control of thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people as ultimate king. How many know the names of Pharaohs, the names of Pharaohs and the dynasties? Okay. After a while, actually, here's what happened. In, in Egypt, when one pharaoh uh, arose to power that didn't like the previous pharaohs, they erased their names off the wall and carved new histories. Okay? We don't even know some of the pharaohs. What's the, what's the biggest memory or uh, cultural icon that we have of the great pharaohs of Egypt? Okay? It's called Brendan Fraser and the Mummy. Okay? Because the thing we think about, what are, what, are, what are the pharaohs known for? Okay? A, an exhibit where they find a gold coffin and it comes to, a, comes to Van Andel Arena. Okay? And we, th- we think of, nobody knows of pharaohs today. But the name of Moses is told every year to thousands upon thousands upon thousands. Hundreds of, is known to millions of Christians through the globe. And although it would have been awesome for, and he, as he thinks about it at the time, think of how amazing it would be to be Pharaoh. In the course of the big scheme of God, what God's plan for him was, through grace, was much more amazing than anything that he could have achieved through turning his back on God's plan. So, so here, here's my encouragement for us today. I... I It's always hard to do the right thing. But when we do the right thing, we will be blessed in ways we sometimes can't imagine right now. And we will experience grace in ways that we couldn't plan or control. Because the stories that we see in Genesis and Exodus and throughout the Bible are stories we're reminded of and things we have to learn of over and over. And that is that we face challenging circumstances We can't control them. We need to let go and give. We do our best, okay? We we do our best to to make everything work. But once we've done our best, we have to realize God is in control ultimately, and we have to give everything we have to God and trust him with it. 
And if we can do that early, not at the moment of desperation, but we can do that early, whether it's a relationship or our life or our circumstances or our work or our job or our kids or our parents or whatever it is, if we learn to just give that to God and leave that there, and what we can experience is joy and rest that God will fulfill his promises and we will experience his grace and we will, we will understand and experience far more through his grace and sovereignty than we ever would have without it. So let's pray. Jesus, we invite you into our hearts and lives. We ask you to help us to give everything we have to you. I do not know what's like on the forefront of the minds and hearts of everybody here. It might be a relationship that they have to surrender. It might be... Uh, a job or a difficult circumstance or something that has just come up this week. It might be health. It might be, I don't know what it is. But whatever it is, Lord, it might just be our soul and that you are tugging at our soul and want us to give ourselves to you. Lord, right now in this moment, we just surrender our hearts and lives to you, ask you to help us to give you control. May we trust you and seek to live for you. In Jesus' name, amen. So as we do worship, we're going to have communion. It's over here. If you would like to take communion, we invite you to do that during our worship time. It just, you just get up and take communion. Communion is an expression of your relationship with Jesus. And it's an expression of the fact that Jesus' body was broken for us. His blood was shed for us. And we take the bread and dip it in the, in, in the cup and that symbolizes Jesus' body and blood shed for us. If you have accepted this as a gift and surrendered your life to him, you are, we, we invite you to come and take communion. We're also going to do the offering and, and just come and take the offering. As we do that, let's pray. Jesus, thank you for the chance we have to worship now, sing songs of praise, sing songs of glory, of grace, of how you have blessed us, of bringing our challenges to you. May, may we know the power of your grace. And even as we give, as we take communion, as we worship, we do this with thanksgiving. In Jesus' name, amen.